Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. Ever hear of Pokemon? Of Pikachu? If not you, I can guarantee your kids have. My four-year-old son has a Pikachu doll. And that is the challenge for John Vizensky, Director of Information Security and Data Protection Officer at Pokemon. He not only has to protect the brand of Pokemon, many of his customers indirectly or directly are children. That carries an extra burden and responsibility that John doesn't take lightly. I caught up with John at SumoLogic's user conference, and we talked about his background and about the challenges of trust and privacy when your product is used by the most innocent, our children. So without any further ado, let's dig in. All right, welcome everybody to the Masters of Data podcast. We're actually recording uh, live here on the floor of the SumoLogic user conference, and I'm really excited to have John Wisniewski with me. Thank you for coming on. He's over at Pokemon. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure to be here, absolutely. And I, I had to tell you, when I when I heard I was going to talk to somebody over at Pokemon, I thought this was going to be an exciting conversation, so I think this will be this will be good. Well, sure. I mean, quite frankly, I'm only here because there's an espresso machine right next to us, so <laughs> I figured I figured while I'm sitting here drinking espresso, it would be, be all right to talk so to you. So I'm asking you questions, you just walk over and get it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's good. Absolutely. I, like, I, I like it. We're on the same wavelength. I'm, I'm only on my fourth cup, so I'm, I still... <laughs> <laughs> If I have a heart attack halfway through the podcast... <laughs> please, please just resuscitate me, edit out the, edit out the gurgles and all that sort of stuff, and, and we'll just keep pressing on. <laughs> all right, all right, we got a deal. Well, the thing I always start with, John, is just talking about where people came from, you know, kind of humanize the people behind the data. So, I mean, how did you get into security? What's the story? Yeah, so, uh, you know, before I was at Pokemon, I spent 10 years in the United States Air Force as a cyberspace operations officer. Starting out as, you know, like a lot of security professionals, you don't necessarily start in the security field, you know, whether it's systems admins or, or DevOps engineers or test engineers or, you know, some of the best hackers in the world who weren't tech people at all until they realized they had that sort of idea for problem solving. So I, I started out as a combat communications officer, you know, setting up networks in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then I, I moved to work for the intelligence community for some time. And then really kind of the cybersecurity aspect of it was, was towards the latter half of working for, for the intel community. And then moving to the Pentagon to work for the, the chief information officer of the Air Force. So in that regard, we were kind of, you know, at, at the time, General Bender was, was kind of at the forefront of, of trying to make sure that we had, had this understanding of, you know, how is the Air Force going to embrace cybersecurity and how are we going to foster innovation within not just the Air Force, but the Department of Defense writ large? Because I, I don't know if you've heard, they're kind of Byzantine <laughs> and slow and it's a large bureaucracy. So I, I did that with him for, for about a year. And then, and then my final job was, was being the, the cybersecurity advisor of the chief of staff of the Air Force. And in that regard, it was everything from making sure his iPhone worked to, you know, kind of, you know, keeping, keeping the staff informed about what was going on in cybersecurity. Well, I'm sure it was pretty interesting. Pretty interesting yeah, yeah, busy, busy for sure. And, you know, I think one of the biggest advantages of, of having the opportunity to work in, in an environment like that is the Department of Defense is the, the world's largest bureaucracy. And, and, <laughs> and being able to see that sort of bureaucracy up close has really, I, I, I like to feel like it's enabled me to, to move a little bit faster on the outside because it was sort of my resistance training for for some time. So around that time, you know, Pokemon Go explodes. You know, I think it was a, a pretty big surprise for all involved, including the brand. You know, you never really plan for 800 million uh, downloads. So the scalability problems that come with that are pretty massive. 
And so what the, the company did with that sort of a you know, new data challenge, new technological challenge was really get serious about you know, investing in technology, investing in, in the talent that they need to bring on board in order to you know, continue to ride that wave, continue to you know, make products fast, secure products and things like that. And so they didn't have an internal security team and I got the call to, to come out and, and stand it from the ground up. And so for the, for the last year, that's what, what I've been up to is, is everything from you know, building out my team to getting our arms around what our security architecture looked like to vendor management, uh, you know, everything that goes into, you know, building out a, a solid information security program. And, and I don't know if you heard, but about, about halfway in there, there was this thing called GDPR. <laughs> just, just a little thing. Just a little thing, you know, and, and you know, we have, we're a global brand. We have customers all over the place. So I'm also the company's data protection officer. And so it was my job to, to kind of, you know, work with our legal team, God bless them, to wrap our arms around how this applies to, to us as a brand. And then moving forward, you know, how do we look at things like GDPR and data privacy as a way of life as opposed to you know, a project or a line in the sand? So it's been an interesting ride in that regard. And it sounds like you feel like your, your experience in the, in the military and the Air Force actually helped prepare you to do some of these things, right? I mean, it seems like it's, it's kind of a good background for a view in a large organization how to apply it or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it all, it all boils down to, to an operational mindset, right? So. You know, whether your business's job is to sell Pikachu or whether it's your, you know, organization's mission to put a Hellfire missile in a cave somewhere across the world, you know, the, the principles of how you make those decisions and why you make those decisions and how quickly can you make those decisions are, are, pretty, are pretty similar, right? At the end of the day, a lot of the technology is the same. A lot of the threats you see are the same and, and so on and so forth. You know, there's this concept in the military and in business in, in some respects too of the OODA loop, right? So this guy in the Air Force named John Boyd, he came up with this, this concept of observe, orient, decide, and act. And that's a loop, and you feed that loop, right? And the key to, you know, at the time, you know, his thesis was, was around, was around dogfights and such. And so the idea was that if your OODA loop was faster than the adversary's OODA loop, you were bound to win. And so when you're making decisions, whether it's about policy, process, people, technology, all of those decisions should be made with how is this going to compress my OODA loop so I can fly, fight, and win. So that, that, that's foundational now in, in a lot of military doctrine. And on, it works in business too, and security specifically, right? And so whether it's responding to an incident or responding to threat actors or responding to you know, the business needs X, Y, or Z, and they need it by this particular date that seems impossible, you know, every decision we make as a security team and every decision I make as, as the head of the security team are, how is this going to, you know, compress our OODA loop to the point where, you know, should we have an incident or, or should we need to respond to a business need? You know, how are we going to be able to observe the situation, orient ourselves, make an efficient, effective decision, act on it, and then, all right, did it work? Great. If not, because we're automating and because we're making operational decisions, you know, we can kind of feed back into that. And, and largely that that sort of mindset came from my time in the military. No, that makes total sense. I, I, I spent a lot of time in D.C., and I think that was, that was one thing I really noticed with a lot of the, my colleagues that have spent time in the military. It really, it really gives you a good mindset for thinking about organization, about being, how to be effective at you know, all different levels of, of organizations. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, w what was the most surprising thing when you, for you when you switched out of the you know, Air Force over to, to Pokemon Go? What, what, was there anything in particular This is like, you're like, crap, this is not what I expected, or this was just, you know, beyond what I expected to see. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things was, you know, Pokemon is a, is a brand that makes people happy, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like no one hates Pikachu. I mean, that's, yeah. that's weird. My kids um, love it. <laughs> right. You know, I'm the, I'm the most popular uncle on the planet and the most popular <laughs> adult within like the entire Seattle area, I'm pretty sure. But one of the things that surprised me the most was just kind of the, the variety of threats that a company like ours can have, even though we are sort of a worldwide happiness type brand. You know, whether it's people trying to, to cheat at our games or, you know, threats, you know, when it comes to, you know, criminal organizations in Eastern Europe that monetize personal data and all those sorts of things. What kind of surprised me the most was that we had a lot of things that we needed to kind of be concentrating on all at once that you wouldn't necessarily associate with a, a company like ours. And so that was, that was definitely one of them. You know, I think the other thing that surprised me, you know, was just how similar it is to try to to try to align yourself and align your security program with whatever the business objective or the mission objective is. I mean, it really is sort of the same, the same thing. Because at the end of the day, you know, I think a lot of security professionals have spent their entire careers trying to prove return on investment, and that ends up being a losing battle. You know, I think the goal for, for people in my position should be the, the board or the CFO or the CEO or, or what have you comes to you because you're a problem solver first and a security professional, professional second. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And was and what's top of mind for you? You you now. So you've been, you know, you've been over a year in the job. You 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 kind of got your arms around it. What what's top of mind for you now? On, after having kind of brought this team together. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what we're going to see, you know, more and more for ourselves and for companies that are like us is this sort of convergence of security and privacy. You know, I think it's a good thing that that I'm dual hatted as you know, you know in charge of of cybersecurity and the data protection officer. Because at the end of the day, both with security and with data privacy, you need to be baking that in, you know, on the front end as opposed to trying to bolt it on later. Um, both from a technical standpoint, from a legal standpoint, from a policy standpoint, you know, the earlier in the process you can get involved and make sure that, you know, decisions that are getting made, you know, are, are made with privacy in mind and with security in mind is going to save you an awful lot of time and technical debt on the back end and, and keep you out of trouble. And so I think, I think part of, you know, what the next year is going to look like for my team is, is to continue to integrate those two aspects of the business, continue to integrate those two aspects of the business as much as possible. You know, I think the, I think the second thing that we're going to concentrate on is leveraging security as an integrative agent within our organization. You know, anecdotally, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but 95% of the people that come to my desk are really looking for me to say no to some idea that someone else had, <laughs> right? I don't want to do that, so let's go find John because John's going to say, uh, no, we can't do that for security well, that's reasons. usually what security people do. It I is mean, usually, honestly, that's, 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 the, <laughs> that's the rule of thumb, right? It's a cliche because it's totally true in most cases, right? Yeah. You know, what we're trying to do at Pokemon, and particularly with the security team, is, okay, if that's the situation where people are coming to us and, and trying to get out of doing something or, or trying to leverage that sort of power of no, you know, how can we, you know, turn that on its head and make ourselves central to how we integrate data in the company, how we, not just security data, but operational data and business intelligence, right? So like any company, we have this large, massive data lake, right? And it's not just about having the data, it's about how are you using it effectively. And in most cases, you know, even if it's an operational problem, a security problem, or a business problem, there's a sort of butterfly effect that goes through the entire lake where, you know, you might have a, an outage that is operational, but there might be a security indicator or a business indicator that is relevant to that particular conversation. 
And the security team is, is very well positioned to kind of tie all of those things together because everyone's always looking for us to, to kind of mediate and, and, and be influencers primarily. And so that's what the team is, is concentrating on is, you know, with some of the products that we're using, you know, Sumo Logic being one of them, some of the products that we're using, you know, how are we going to leverage the tool sets that we have the architecture that we have, how are we going to leverage those products to tie the business together and, and make sure that we're all in alignment? And at the end of the day, that, that's, that's valuable, you know, both for me personally, because I don't have to prove my return on investment as much because we're a business enabler. But more importantly, it improves our security posture. Because at the end of the day, that means that the security culture is just going to continue to raise within our company, you know, not just in the technology organization, but, but across it, because you're going to have security advocates in each one of these business orgs because they are coming to the same meetings you are about solving, you know, very similar data problems. Yeah, no, that makes a lot. Well, you, you know, even when you when you describe it that way, the thing that comes to mind, it feels like what's happening in the security part of businesses is something that happened in other parts of the business around you know engineering and in IT before. It was there was this sense that you know these were the groups that even in IT they were the groups that told you no, like you can't use that piece of hardware, right. you can't use that piece of software, and they had to go to that transition where they had to become. They had to drive value and, and, and add value instead of, and it seems like security is going through the right, same transition, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's very akin to, to early days of cloud adoption, right? So the way most organizations justified cloud in the early days was, hey, this is going to save us money because we don't have to have as big of an IT staff and we don't have to have as big of a hardware staff and so on and so forth. But the transition you start to see is that once, you know, once the company gets a taste of the cloud and understands how it can be a force multiplier for their business, how it can create new business opportunity, new products, new value, you know, all those sorts of things, it ends up just speeding up cloud adoption and, and it starts to not be a linear function, it's, it's definitely an exponential function. You know, the same thing goes for security. As companies are starting to do more in the cloud, security teams are, are going to be responsible not just for keeping up with, you know, projects and technology adoption and all those sorts of things, but really working hand in hand at the forefront of them in order to stay ahead of threats, stay ahead of, you know, visibility into the environment and, and, and the like. Yeah, no, that, that makes a I, I do remember that's one of the things we used to say at Sumo Logic is one of our first hires was a security person. I think it's taken me a few years after, you know, I've been around at Sumo Logic for about six years now. And I, th I think it took me a couple of years to really grasp how important that was because that was not a normal thing for software companies at that point, you know, that you really bake in security. But it, it seems like that's the point we're at right now as an industry. It's like you, can't, you don't have a choice. Right, right. The business is going to drag you along. You know, another interesting anecdote, you know, our, our DevOps engineers are brilliant. And we're big AWS customers. And when we first got started with a lot of these projects, you know, serverless functions, you know, AWS Lambda, you know, it was one of those things where we used to joke where AWS, you know, they keep telling us that Lambda is going to solve everything and you can leverage it for this and leverage it for that. But once they really started digging into it, you know, it's, oh yeah, that's great. That, make, that gives us the ability to move, you know, twice as fast, three times as fast, four times as fast. And that increasing speed, that increasing speed turns into increasing scale. And that increasing scale turns into visibility problems if you're not paying attention to it, right? So, you know, especially with serverless infrastructure, you can all of a sudden have, you know, 50 functions, then 100 functions. And then you go from zero calls to 4 million calls in a month. And that's really hard to keep up with unless you are in lockstep with your DevOps team. Yeah, no, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I guess part of what it means, too, is that you're the skill sets required within the security community must be changing as well, right? I mean, you, you can't, you're not just the people coming afterwards to, to press a button and run some sort of function that, you know, gives a list of vulnerabilities. You're, you're actually 
I guess the same thing that happened to the IT community. They had to become more like developers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I think that ties into you know the perceived I, I say perceived talent gap in the cybersecurity community. Because I think, I think people in my position, when it comes to security talent and the, and the skill sets that your security team needs, you know, they're searching for this purple unicorn <laughs> that lays golden eggs, where you know, they have 15 years of you know, deep security operations experience, and hopefully they're also an architect, and hopefully they also understand GRC and all those sorts of things, where at the end of the day, for my money, I would rather take a, you know, a terrific you know, test engineer who's been doing automation, understands where the gaps and seams are, has trying to, is trying to find bugs and trying to find them effectively and understands the DevOps pipeline and all those sorts of things, but has the attitude and the aptitude to be able to keep up with how quickly the security space changes. Oh, and maybe in, at night they, you know, they, they troll through hacker forums and they kind of have an understanding of it. They never really thought they could get in the security field because they don't have any of that specific experience, but really they're just waiting for someone to take a shot on them. What I'm describing is my best security engineer. <laughs> this is his first security job, and he has his OSCP now. You know, he is, he is on the front lines of all of the cloud projects we have, and the reason he's able to do that is because he understands how the sausage is made, and he has that operational mindset going in, as opposed to, you know, he grew up as a security professional in that sort of old-school mindset. You know, it's a lot easier for me to teach security fundamentals than it is for me to teach the soft skills of attitude and aptitude and influencing rooms and all those sorts of things. Like, and, and I think that's the future, is, is finding people that understand, you know, how all these systems work and how they work together and how to enable the business, and then giving them the security flavor and the certifications or, or what have you in order to be successful on the security team. No, oh, that makes absolutely sense. You know, that, that example of the purple unicorn that lays golden eggs, it seemed very specific. Is that a Pokemon character? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I stole it from someone who's around here that was explaining to me. That's, you know, that's the resume they're looking for is, is, is uh, a purple unicorn. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. So, you know, one thing we were talking about before as well, I mean, when companies look at their own customer profiles and like who they're serving... You guys are definitely in a different position than, you know, say we're here at Sumo Logic where you're, I mean, you're, you're talking about you're dealing with kids. You're dealing with parents that their kids are using these games. How does that change your approach to the work that you're doing? Yeah, well, you know, at, at the Pokemon Company, one of our, our core values, our core pillars is child safety. I had a conversation, you know, with all of our directors and our executives at one point, and I said, you know, in my mind, you know, I, I broaden that, right? Not just child safety, but customer safety. Customer safety and trust. Right, so you know whether a parent is buying a you know a Pikachu plush doll at a department store, or downloading Pokemon Go, or you know buying their kid a Nintendo Switch to to play one of the games that's coming out very soon, you know what they're really doing is is trusting in us that we are going to provide a safe space for their children to enjoy the brand. I mean that implies that applies for children, it applies for people who are 35 years of age, and so on and so forth. But because we understand that, you know, it's that, it's that our customers and parents trust us to be good stewards of their data and good stewards of their privacy, you know, our outlook is if we bake in privacy as a product early on in all of our development processes, in all of our business processes, at the end of the day, that's going to be appreciated by the consumer to the point where privacy does become a product. You know, especially in this day and age where you have, you know, organizations being called in front of the House and the Senate to try to explain to these old geezers, you know, <laughs> you know, what data is and, and how it's being used, you know, people more and more are going to want that with every product that they have, particularly products that are going to involve children. And so I think 
treating privacy as, as a core value in our, our business is also no longer a value proposition and a return on investment. It's actually a business enabler because upholding that trust and upholding that sense of privacy and everything that we do is going to be really valuable to our customers you know, moving forward. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense because I, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and, I, and, you know, and I, I've, I remember getting some games for my seven-year-old and it really made a lot of sense because there's one particular game franchise where I, I, as long as it's got that brand on it, I'm good. Like they've earned my trust. And then we got some other ones and they're selling them stuff that I'm not comfortable with. They're sending her to sites I'm not comfortable with. And it's, then I get rid of them. So, I mean, that, that brand trust is, is, is more important now than it's ever been because it is, you know, especially when you, when you have these kids, you, it's just very hard to control everything they do. So that, that makes Yeah, I mean, if you, if you Google toxic gaming right now, it'll come up with a million examples of game companies or organizations that, you know, because availability and functionality is way more important to them than anything else, like, it's really sort of a dangerous place for you to send your, your, your kid. You know, whether that danger is physical or emotional or whatever, like, you know, if I was in your position, I don't want my seven-year-old going to play a particular game online and it's just full of trolls who are, you know, cursing or, or, or being racist or, you know, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so I think more and more, you know, organizations, particularly ones that cater to a younger audience, are, are getting serious about making sure they put controls in place and they put tools in place to, to help that process. Yeah. Well, and, I, and definitely back to what you were talking about before, the only way you can do that is if the security team is involved along the whole Absolutely. process. Yeah. Well, because at the end of the day, even if that in most organizations has, has always resided with, you know, customer service or the legal team or, or someone else, like I said before, the security team is well postured to kind of tie all of those things together in a, a cohesive vision and strategy moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. So, I mean, what's next? So what's, what's on your horizon next? What are you, what are you going to be concerned with in the next year, you know, couple of years? Yeah, so one of the things that we've been working on in the last year, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the program was new, so it was a matter of building out that architecture, figuring out what kind of monitoring we wanted in place. You know, the brand has a lot of, you know, really exciting things coming out in the next, you know, next couple of years. It's going to keep us quite busy. So I'm, I'm confident that, you know, we have the monitoring and the controls in place to, to, you know, keep pace with that sort of, you know, release cycle and development cycle and all those sorts of things. And so a lot of it will be, you know, continuing to, to adjust that OODA loop for ourselves, continuing to, to make additions and subtractions into our security architecture where necessary. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, most people who are in my position, particularly ones that are so invested in the cloud, need to start thinking of the architecture as, as kind of two parts. Part one is, you know, what is my foundation? Like, what are the couple of key tool sets that give me the capability at a, at a basic level that I need? And the rest of the tools are, are almost modular in a sense that, you know, I want to make sure that I have a good foundation with some organizations that provide me tools and they have a vested interest in seeing me be successful. And the rest of the architecture should be modular enough that if, if something changes, because it always does, every six months, nine months, 12 months, 18 months, if something changes, I can hot swap out you know, those pieces of my architecture in order to stay ahead of whatever the threats are. Or if it turns out that one of these tools ends up slowing down my business too much for one reason or another, you know, I can take it off and I can look on either side of the stack to ensure that, you know, that we're putting tools in place that are, are going to be effective at helping us keep the pace with the business. And so, you know, that's a long way of saying that, you know, that's what's on the horizon is, is now that we've gone through that almost tech startup-like, we needed to build something and be ready, all right, now how are we going to adjust on the fly? And what does is, what is normal look like for us? 
You know, I joke with the team all the time, don't get used to throwing 50-yard passes. You know, when we got on board and there's nothing, like everything is a 50-yard pass to the point where that, that becomes the new normal, right? Yeah. We're always building, we're always innovating, we're always building new process, always bringing on new tools. Okay, so once all those tools are in place, what does a normal day start to look like? You know, how culturally do you get to a point where this is what we do every day? And so to use that football analogy, how do you build a running game now? How do you, how do you, you, know, how do you adjust to what's going on? And, and how do you keep your people motivated you know, when they're so experienced with that sort of building culture and now they're moving into more of a sustainment and more of a slight adjustment as opposed to a you know, giant POC involving millions of dollars? How do you end up being normal? <laughs> is, is, I guess, the, the question. But what's normal? Well, yeah, right. Like, like I, I hope that next year I'm not talking on this podcast about how I built out a program. I hope I'm, I hope I'm explaining how we navigate the cultural waters of you know, keeping people motivated and invest, invested in what they do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so it goes right back to where we started. I mean, this is, at the end of the day, this is all about culture. This is about teaming. This is about you know, building a great team with great people, which makes total sense. Just like yeah, absolutely. Else. Well, John, this has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to come here at the at the conference, and I'm I'm sure we'll we'll get you back. We'll <laughs> we'll get you back to talk about where where you ended up a year from now. Just make sure that espresso machine's here, and I'm always happy to come. Anything you want, anything. <laughs> All right, absolutely, thanks. my friend. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.